0: Please remain standing in honor of God's Word. We're continuing on in the book of Acts. And this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 44. And we'll read through Acts chapter 11, verse 18. To bring you up to speed, um, Peter has come to the house of Cornelius in Caesarea, And he basically has um, just finished preaching the gospel. Almost finished with his sermon. And then verse 44 says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles also had received the word. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I want to pray that as Your Word goes forth this morning, Your Holy Spirit will descend once again. For what we need is Your Word combined with Your Spirit. We need Your power in our lives. Father, I thank You for the message of this passage. Father, help us to see the implications it has for our lives. May this be much more than a history lesson. May this be a challenge to us in how we live in the 21st century. How we view other churches. How we view our brothers and sisters in Christ. How we understand you working in our midst. So, Father, send your Holy Spirit to empower me. Send your Holy Spirit to give your people understanding. And we ask this confidently in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have seated. it. Let me take you back to the beginning of Acts and remind you of how the book of Acts began. In Acts 1.8, we read the words of Jesus who said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We mentioned that this is... Basically, a simple outline of the book of Acts. The apostles, the disciples will be filled with the Holy Spirit so that they can be the witnesses they're called to be. And then we're given the trajectory of the gospel. It will begin in the city of Jerusalem. That will be the launching pad. And it will go out from there and it will go into all Judea. And then it will finally make inroads into Samaritan territory. And then from there, it will even go to the ends of the earth. Now, as we follow that outline, we need to remember that God is doing more than just saving isolated individuals or people groups. God is not only saving people as disciples go forth, but He is also enfolding them into the same church. Now, as the Jews went throughout Jerusalem and all Judea, everything was okay. They were more than happy to invite other Jews into the body of Christ. They said, this is wonderful. But, when they went into Samaritan territory, they were not quite as excited bringing in the despised half-breed Samaritans. And that is how they viewed them. They looked down their nose at them. They thought they weren't as worthy as they were. And they were not as excited to enfold Samaritans into the body of Christ. And that explains why we were in Acts chapter 8. Something very unusual took place when the Gospel went to the Samaritans. And what happened was, the Gospel goes to Samaritans. They believe the Word of the Lord, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit. And that kind of takes us aback because that's atypical. Why did the Holy Spirit not come? Because there were no disciples there. There were no apostles there. So the church sent Peter and John to investigate whether or not the Samaritans really did receive God's Word. And think about it. They sent the two most powerful apostles to check on. You think they might have better things to do, which tells you about the serious nature of this. They wanted nobody less than Peter and John to go to Samaria and make sure that they really did receive the word of the Lord. So Peter and John go, sure enough, they really did receive the word of the Lord. Peter and John lay their hands upon them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now again, I say to you, it was odd that they believed the message and there was a delay before the Holy Spirit come. But that oddness was intentional, it was designed by God so that Peter and John could come and confirm that indeed, these Samaritans are believers and they are part of the same church. Right from the very beginning, God doesn't want a Jewish church over here, a Samaritan church over here, and this church over there, and that church over there. He wants to make it very clear, right from the very beginning, there is one holy, universal, Catholic church. Catholic with a small c, meaning universal. God isn't building separate churches, separate bodies of Christ. There's only one body of Christ. And everybody is incorporated into that body. This is very important. In John 10, if you want to turn back just a little bit, just before Acts, we have the passage where Jesus describes Himself as the Good Shepherd. And in verse 16, Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not... Of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What does does he mean by that? Obviously, he's using an analogy talking about sheep. What, What does he mean? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. In other words, other sheep that are not Jewish, other sheep that are Samaritans or Gentiles. He says, I must bring them in also. And note very carefully, they're going to be a part of the same flock. We're all going to be in this together because there's one flock, one shepherd. So he's going to enfold all the different sheep. That's what he's referring to. And that's what's happening in the book of Acts. We're seeing Jesus bring in other sheep through the apostles so that there's one flock. Unity in the body of Christ, as I've said earlier, is very important. Ephesians 4, three. Paul says that we as believers with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love are to be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I've mentioned this verse before and some of you might be thinking, Pastor Wayne, don't you ever tire of emphasizing unity in the body of Christ? And my honest answer (laughs) is yes and no. Um, No, I don't tire of emphasizing unity in the body of Christ because it is so important for us to be one, to be in this together. But if I am honest, sometimes I do get tired of emphasizing unity because it seems sometimes we are so petty we are so petty and we divide over things that are so insignificant. So that if I really am honest with you this morning, sometimes I do tire because I tire of the divisions that we have that are over nothing. Nothing that really matters of ultimate significance. And I do tire over that. Because sometimes it seems we're just, we're, we're so petty in the body of Christ because of our pride and our. Arrogance. And it's terrible. It's a shame. It really shouldn't be that way. Because we really are called to build one another up. You know, when we come together like we had a work day yesterday, you know, I I want you to know, for me, there's there's something far more important than cleaning carpets. Cleaning windows. And, And don't get me wrong, I love clean carpets. Your feet's dirty carpets. I love clean windows, especially so I can look out back and enjoy the beautiful view that we have. But most importantly, my prayer is that we would have a great time of fellowship and this would enhance the unity that we have in the church. That's my number one concern. If we came together and nothing got clean because you know a couple guys were over there talking as they were yesterday and the girls were over there talking and you know how they are. They'll talk for hours. And, and they got distracted from all the project that we had on, on the board. If, if that happened, I, I would go home. And I'd, thank you, Lord. It was a success. Fellowship taking place everywhere I looked in the church. It was wonderful, Lord. Thank you. Maybe next time we'll get the carpets cleaned because that is so important. We need to build one another up. And I hope every single week you're coming to church and you test yourself. Hope every single week. Coming to church like we did this morning. You're coming with a ministry mindset. You're coming saying, Lord, bring people my way who I can encourage. Even if it's just through saying, good morning, glad to see you. Nice hat. I like the hat you're wearing. Looks, looks great. Good morning. Glad, glad to see you. Missed you last week. So glad you're here. What, whatever it is. I hope you're, you're coming on a, on a mission. I hope you're thinking ministry. I hope you're not just thinking, well, the pastor, today's his busy day. hope he's prepared. I hope I am prepared. But I'm also hoping that as you come this Sunday morning, you're prepared. You're prepared to listen to God's Word because you've been praying for me and you've been praying for yourself. So you're going to sit there as a good Berean, attentive to what I'm saying, making sure these things are true, and applying them as the Spirit leads. But I also hope you're coming saying, Lord, help me to be a minister to someone. Help me to build somebody up. Help me to encourage somebody up. In a church of our side, there must be dozens of people who are in desperate need of encouragement. Please use me to build somebody up. That should be our mindset. And it's interesting what Paul says after he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He goes on and he says in the next few verses, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let me ask you children. Children paying attention? Did you notice one word that was emphasized again and again and again? Did you notice one word that was emphasized again and again and again? What was it? Somebody tell me. One! One. Thank you. One! What's Paul trying to communicate? Again, it's not very difficult. Even the children got it. (laughs) Paul's trying to communicate the fact that we should be united because we are one in so many ways. So our oneness is very important. And right from the very beginning, as the gospel is going forth, God is emphasizing we're one. So don't just give the gospel to the Samaritans, but enfold them into the body of Christ. Well, now, as the message goes forth, we are actually reaching the last stage, the ends of the earth. Remember, the gospel begins in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Cornelius is the beginning, if you will, of the end of the earth being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, God is not just saving isolated individuals, but He is incorporating them into the body of Christ. Now, let's ask this question. How will the Jews accept the Gentiles? How will the Jews accept the Gentiles? Because this is not going to be easy. If the Jews were suspicious of Samaritans being a part of the body of Christ, they are utterly incredulous when it comes to Gentiles being a part of the body of Christ. So, how will they be enfolded in? Well, it might help to realize that Jesus Christ, from one perspective, has obliterated the Jewish Gentile. Distinction. Galatians talks about this. I'd like you to turn there if you will. Galatians 3. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek. We could say Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. From one perspective... There are no longer any Jews. There are no longer any Gentiles in the body of Christ. We are all one. Those distinctions have been done away with. Turn ahead to Ephesians 2, if you will. Right after Galatians. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 11. Paul writing to Gentiles, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what is Paul referring to when he talks about the dividing wall of hostility? Really, that's a reference to how the temple was set up. And the temple was set up that there was a court of Gentiles, and they could only go so far. If you were a Gentile, you could only go so far as you're approaching the Holy of Holies, God's presence. The Jews, they could go beyond the court of the Gentiles and they could go a little further. So, there's this barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles that existed in the temple. Jesus died, so that barrier, that distinction between Jews and Gentiles could be obliterated. Now, you also need to understand that the Jews liked that distinction. It was a source of pride In a way, it's almost as though, uh, Jews would go to the temple, and hopefully they didn't do this, but it's as though they were going to the temple and they would walk walk right past the Gentiles, and they would say, na 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 na, we get to keep going further, you don't. Because we're special. We're the apple of God's eye. We have God's word, we have His oracles. Abraham is our father, not your father. We can go in a little further. Jesus came to do away with that distinction. By the way, this is fascinating. There was a sign between the court of the Gentiles and where the Israelites could go, and this is what it read. No Gentile Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's how the Jews felt. Now, God didn't tell them to put up that sign. They put it up on their own because they wanted to make it real clear. Here's the line of demarcation right here. You can't go anywhere. You cross that line, your life is in your own hands. And a little later in the book of Acts, we're going to get to a place where they thought, the Jews thought that Paul brought a Gentile, Trophimus into the temple beyond that line. Now, he didn't, but they thought he did. And because of that, they almost killed him. And if the Roman authorities didn't intervene, they would have killed Paul. Because the Gentiles came, came in that temple area where they were not allowed to go. So that, that's the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles that, that existed. But Jesus came to do away with that. And let me read on in Ephesians 2. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in His flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Theologians have referred to this as a third race. Jesus died... To do away with Jews and Gentiles, he said, forget that, let's do away with that. Let's have a third race. A new humanity in Jesus Christ. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's quite a phrase, isn't it? Killing the hostility. Jesus Christ died, not just so we could go to heaven. Jesus Christ died so that Jews and Gentiles could sit down at the same table and eat together. Jesus Christ died so that black Americans and white Americans could kneel before the same communion rail and receive communion at the same time. A couple of weeks ago, I, I mentioned that shortly after. The Civil War, a black man came to the front and he knelt down. And and everybody in the church was appalled because blacks and whites didn't take communion together. They were to remain separate. And while everyone was appalled and shocked by this, Robert E. Lee walked forward, knelt down next to the black man, and together they received communion. And then the whole church finally came together, blacks and whites communing at the Lord's table. So I was thinking about that episode again this week, I thought, you know what the travesty of slavery was in our nation? It was a denial of the gospel. The gospel. Where God's breaking down barriers, bringing everybody together. We are all one in Christ. That's the great travesty of American history. We were denying the gospel And what a shame that Martin Luther King Jr. had to point out that Sunday morning, 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour in our nation. That's terrible. That's terrible. That calls for repentance. That calls for shame. That should be the most integrated hour of the week when everybody comes together because we, of all people, recognize that we are one in Jesus Christ. And by the way, if there is going to be unity in our nation, it is not going to happen by electing a certain person to office. If if you're looking to a politician in Washington to unite this country, I got news for you. It's not going to happen. And don't be surprised when someone's elected to office and he doesn't unite people. Jesus Christ died so that we could be united. Nothing will unite this nation. Nothing will unite the world other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's going to take. Jesus is the great uniter. Which means Satan is the great divider. And at a very practical level, we need to realize that when there's different divisions in the body of Christ, we're being acted on, not by God. Spiritual battles taking place and Satan's granting a foothold if there is a vision because we are all one in Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't challenge one another about different beliefs and ways of raising children or issues or whatnot. It doesn't mean we don't challenge one another. But it does mean that we recognize that we are all part of the body of Christ, even if we do have differences of agreement beyond the gospel. We are one. Now, how, again, is God going to bring Jews and Gentiles together? In previous weeks, I mentioned that it took nothing less than a visit from an angel, Peter falling into a trance, and God speaking him directly from heaven, not once, but then twice in three different series. This week, I want us to see that for Jews and Gentiles to come together, it will take nothing less. Then a second Pentecost. Basically, what we have at the end of Acts 10 is a Gentile Pentecost. God working miraculously and powerfully to make sure that the Jews understand that He's working among Gentiles just as much as He's working among the Jews. So I want to look at this Gentile Pentecost and then we'll look briefly at the outrage that resulted, and then we'll look at Peter's explanation. So, Acts ten forty four. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word. Peter is preaching the Gospel, and he's not quite finished. Now, a good thing to do when you're reading the Bible is to look for things that are surprising. A commentator, Dick Lucas, said, when you read the text, look for things that are surprising. Look for things that are unexpected. Now, when you do that, there are tons of things in the Bible that are surprising. There are many things in this passage that are surprising. But let me point out three things in this verse verse, that I find surprising. The first is that Peter isn't done with his sermon. While Peter was still saying these things, he's not done. And then that's interesting because a little later in 11.15 as he's recounting this incident, he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell. So he, he was just getting started. He was just getting warmed up. And as, as a preacher, I can, I can appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, a lot more to say. <laughs> he wasn't finished. But before he's even done with his sermon, he just got started. The Holy Spirit interrupts. The audacity. <laughs> Holy Spirit interrupts And falls upon the people. And that brings me to the second thing that I find surprising in this verse. And that's the phrase that the Holy Spirit fell. What I would have expected is that the Holy Spirit came upon them, or they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But it says the Holy Spirit fell, which immediately raises the question, fell from where? Where did the Holy Spirit fall from? Any of you children want to venture a guess? That includes you too, Norbert. Would you... <laughs> Any children want to venture a guess? Older children? Anybody? Holy Spirit fell from somebody. Go ahead. Heaven! Heaven. <laughs> I think so. We're not told specifically, but back in Acts 2, when we have what I'll now call the Jewish Pentecost, Acts 2 begins, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as the fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. So the Holy Spirit fell from heaven. Did He fall in the same way I suspect that he did. I'm not going to be dogmatic, but I suspect that it was something very similar. Because how else did they know that he fell if in fact he did fall from heaven? So somehow his physical presence made, made itself known. Or, or we could say the Holy Spirit's spiritual presence made itself known in some kind of physical, tangible way. But regardless, I, I find that interesting. Now, I'm also surprised by what it says next. I would have expected something like this. Don't look at the text. Look at me. Uh, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on... What would you expect? Fell on, fell on Peter or fell on the people, right? Notice what it says. Fell on all those who heard the Word. I love that. I love that. I'm going to camp here for a minute. I, I think this, this has implications. Huge implications. Peter is preaching. God's Word is going forth. The Holy Spirit comes from heaven. He descends, and we're told very specifically this is why I think it's important. We're told very specifically, not generically, that He fell on the people in the household. He fell on those who heard the word. Luke making it very clear that there is a convergence that takes place between God's Word and God's Spirit. And this is very important because, in one sense, we're all charismatics. We all want more of God's Spirit. Amen? We do. Even some of you non charismatics. I could tell you were hesitant. But we all want more of God's Spirit. And what this is communicating, which is why I think this is so important, the Holy Spirit comes as God's Word goes forth. So if you want to be a Spirit-filled Christian, you need to be a Word-filled Christian. And this is why the Reformers were so committed to expository preaching. Because they really did believe God makes His presence and His power known when His Word is opened, explained, and expounded upon. They really did believe. When when the Bible speaks, God speaks, and He makes His presence and power known. That's very important. So if you turn to Ephesians 5.18, you'll read that we are to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving thanks to God the Father always. And then you'll turn to Colossians 3.16 and you'll see that it says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Basically saying the same thing, just a little differently. Speaking to one heart, Psalm psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, being thankful in your hearts to God. You say, wow, that's an interesting observation. When we're filled with the Spirit, certain things result. And when the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, those same characteristics manifest themselves in our lives. How can that be? Because when the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, we're filled with the Spirit and there is the same result. So it is very important to see how God's Word and God's Spirit comes together in our lives. Very important because we all know that we need God's Spirit in our lives. That's that's how the Spirit comes. Verse 45, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, that's the six men who accompanied him, were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out. That's not their amazement. They had seen that before. That's not what amazed them. What amazed them that. Was that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Wow, this is amazing. This is astounding. God would pour out His Spirit even on the dogs. We, we mean the Gentiles. And again, remember, that's how they viewed the Gentiles. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. They wouldn't enter their house. They wouldn't eat with them. They despised them. They are amazed that God is blessing them just as much as they were blessed. That they're absolutely amazed. They're absolutely taken aback by this. They are surprised by this. This was the last thing that they expected. And they know that this happened. We read, For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And tongues is not babble. It's not gibberish. It's intelligible understandable languages. So the Gentiles are speaking in other languages that they didn't know. And the Jews are hearing this and they are absolutely amazed. They know it's a work of God because they are extolling God. So how, how could they criticize the Gentiles? Uh, imagine your strongest enemy, wherever you want to think, wouldn't it be hard to criticize him or her if they were praising God? singing about how wonderful God was, how glorious God was, how great our Lord Jesus Christ was. It would be very hard to look down on your worst enemy if they were declaring God's praises. And that's what the Gentiles are doing, making it very clear. This has got to be a work of God. There's no other explanation than God's supernatural work in their lives. And then Peter declared, and here we have a surprise as well. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, notice the emphasis on baptism. Peter mentions it not once, but twice. And he mentions it negatively, and he mentions it positively. Negatively, he says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have just received the Holy Spirit Just as we have. I think that's a challenge to the Jews who are with Him. Basically, He's saying, hey, can you you keep water from these people who have just been baptized? Can, Can you withhold that? Would you do that? Because the same work that happened among us has just now happened among them. Can you withhold them? Would you tell them they couldn't be baptized? And then notice positively, verse 48, and He, what's that word say? commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that surprising? Not just encourage them to be baptized, offered them to be baptized. Commanded them. Cornelius, get your whole household together. Everybody in this household. And I want you right now to get baptized. Not an option. So mere minutes after their conversion, they're being baptized. Well, so maybe Cornelius said, wait, wait a second, I've only been a Christian for two minutes. Shouldn't we think about this a little bit? No, we don't need to think about it a little bit. You know who Jesus is. He's the Savior, right? Well, yeah, I, I bet I know. That's all you need to know. You, you need to be baptized. Quite urgency here. What, what's the urgency? Well, let's think about what baptism represents. And let's not be reductionistic here. Okay? Let's, let's not reduce baptism to its bare minimum. So often I hear baptism is identification with, with the death and resurrection of Christ. And I want to say yes and amen. But baptism, to really appreciate baptism symbolizes much more than that. author of Hebrews talks about having your conscience sprinkled clean. That's, that's a reference to the waters of baptism. And it's a reference to our sins being washed away. Baptism also symbolizes that your sins are being Washed away. And water also represents the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus saying, I'll give you living water, and living water will flow from within you, and then it says, by this he was referring to the Holy Spirit. So the Bible makes a connection between water and the Holy Spirit. And baptism also represents not just immersion into Jesus as a person, but immersion into his very body, i.e., the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, form one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves, or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. So why the urgency with baptism here? Because Peter wants to make it very clear that they are Christians and they are being baptized into the body of Christ so that there is one body. Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, male, female. We're all in this together. The urgency is that the Gentiles come into the same church. Otherwise, there would have been a Jewish church over here, and there would have been a Gentile church over here. The Jews and the Gentiles would have been happy with that, but God would not have been happy with that. Because there's only one body. So, a couple real clear implications here. That if you're a Christian, you need to be baptized right away. Uh, that we've seen it again and again. We saw that in Acts 2 when Peter preaches his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. We're told that those who received the message were baptized right away. Uh, Saul, following his conversion, uh, was told to be baptized right away. And he was even told, what are you waiting for? Again, we see the urgency. What are you waiting for, Saul? Be baptized. Uh, so, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. The Bible knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian. That's an oxymoron. All Christians are baptized. The other implication, and this one we're a little slower to realize, the other implication is that the Bible knows nothing of a baptized Christian who's not a part of a church. Again, right away, you're a baptized Christian. You need to be united to a church at a very practical level. That means church membership. I, I know there's, there's a time period for investigating churches. What do they believe? What's their church government? Um, what's this church all about? What's its philosophy of ministry? What's, what's its mission statement? What is, what is it committed to? How's it going to carry out that mission statement? I know all those questions. That, that's valid. Uh, I have no problem with what we could call a courtship phase. But a courtship phase that goes on indefinitely um, is a frustration, is it not? <laughs> Eventually, there has to be a marriage. Eventually, there has to be a wedding. And some of you need to think about church membership. You need to do your due diligence, think through what we're about as a church or what other churches are about. But eventually, you need to unite to the body of Christ through a local church. Let's not be more spiritual than God. Let's not be up here and say, well, you know, I'm a part of the church universal. If you really are a part of the church universal, then you need to be a part of the local church visible. This this is very tangible. Let's let's not take these spiritual truths and leave them up here floating in the spiritual realm. These spiritual truths have concrete realities. People coming together, committing themselves to one another. which, Which is why we have spiritual gifts so that we can encourage one another, So we can pray for one another. We're to do that in the body of Christ. And right away, Peter's making it very clear that these Gentiles have been converted and he wants them to be enfolded into the body of Christ. Now, was everybody excited about this? Not exactly. Chapter 11. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of the Lord. Bad news traveled quickly. Uh, the end of 48 said um, that the Gentiles, those in Cornelius' household, they asked him to remain for some days. Um, that's not surprising. Um, of course, we would want Peter to remain. Uh, what is surprising to me is that it's so uh, downplayed. I thought it would have been something like, and they begged Peter, <laughs> please stay, don't go anywhere. Uh, which is basically how Lydia responded after her conversion in Acts 16. But be that as it may, Peter stays for some days, whatever that means, with Cornelius and his household for follow-up discipleship, uh, training in doctrine, righteousness, those kinds of things. And while Peter is staying there, word is spreading like wildfire, even before cell phones and text messaging and the internet, Word is spreading like crazy. Uh, so, Peter finally goes up to Jerusalem and he is confronted. So, when Peter had gone up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, and that just means the Hebrews uh, generally, Jewish Christians, criticized him. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? You actually went into their house? Sat down at their table? Peter! How dare you? What were you thinking? And they rebuke him. They criticize him. They are absolutely appalled by this. Do you, do you think we're going to sit down with Gentiles? You're, you got another thing coming. Do you think we're going to take communion with them? You've got another thing coming. That's, that's not going to happen. They were repulsed by this. So Peter has to explain himself. So he recounts the whole incident. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. And then Luke tells us the whole story. And I won't give you the details because if you've been here, we've already gone through all these details. But what you should notice is that Luke gives us all these details again. Because he could have just said... So Peter explained everything that happened between him and Cornelius. But he doesn't say that. Luke draws out the whole story once again, only this time it's just told from Peter's side alone. But he draws out the whole story with all the details being given again. Why does Luke do that? Again, because it was not an easy thing for Jews and Gentiles to come together. So Luke wants to make it very clear. Let me tell you the story all over again so that you can understand God is really working in a miraculous way to bring Jews and Gentiles together. And basically, Jesus, or excuse me, Peter shows them that they're coming together with three simple points. We could describe it this way. First of all, he explains God's supernatural invention, intervention. He talks how the angel came to Cornelius. He talks about the trance that he had. He talks about the voice that came from heaven. He talks about how the Holy Spirit led him to go with these men. Don't make any distinction. So he describes God's supernatural sovereign work in orchestrating this whole meeting between him and Cornelius and those in his household. The second answer he gives is that God blessed them with a the Pentecost just like they were blessed with the Pentecost. 11.15 As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. When did the Holy Spirit fall on the Jews? On the day of Pentecost, right? So He says the Holy Spirit fell on them just like it fell on us at the beginning on the day of Pentecost. They experienced their own unique Pentecost. So he backs it up through the sovereign work of God, the Pentecostal experience, and then God's Word. Verse 16, And I remembered the Word of the Lord, how He said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this also brings us right back to the very beginning of the book of Acts. Because in Acts 1.5, Jesus tells the disciples, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And they were being baptized, but now we have the Gentiles being baptized. And Peter says, I remember what Jesus said. This fulfills Scripture. So when he talked about the baptism of the Spirit coming, he didn't just mean the Jews. He also meant the Gentiles. This fulfills Scripture. This is not contradictory to anything we have in God's Word. And then he gives the logical uh, conclusion. If then God gave the same Spirit to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. Peter says. you know what? If God's going to do all this, if He's going to orchestrate all this, if He's going to bless them in this way, who am I? I, I tell you what, I'm just getting out of the way. If, if you think I'm going to stand in God's way, you've got another thing to come. I, I'm getting out of the way. I'm not going to stand in God's way. By implication, he's saying, you want to stand in God's way? you want to get in, in the way of what God is doing among the nations? When they heard these things, They fell. They had nothing to say. But here's the great transition. F.F. Bruce describes it well. He says, Their criticism ceased. Their worship began. And they glorified God. This is wonderful. They really did. They stopped criticizing Peter. They stopped grumbling about Gentiles being part of the same church. And they start worshiping and praising God that He's bringing Jews and Gentiles together. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And now they are excited about it. They say, this is wonderful. This work of God. And they praise God. Now here, you may find something surprising as well. God grants repentance. They're observing everything that's taking place. They're listening to Peter. They're evaluating it against the Word of God. And their conclusion is, this is all a sovereign work of God. Including their repentance. Now this morning I said we need to repent of our sin. Not just the fruit, but we need to go down to the very root. We need to repent. We are responsible to repent. Repent. But here's the thing. As I call you to repent, that will not happen unless God enables you to repent. That's the work of God. It couldn't be any clearer. God grants repentance unto life. It's a gift from God. That's why some people are called to repent and they say, no, I'm not going to. I don't want to turn to God and turn away from my sin. don't want to do that can't do that unless God intervenes. This, this is the sovereign work of God. Which is so important because then God gets all the glory. God gets all the credit. So they can look back at everything that's taking place and say, wow, look what God is doing. So important that God gets all the credit. But it's interesting how repentance also is introduced here. It could, it could have said, so the Gentiles also have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we might have expected. But that's not what it says. All of a sudden repentance enters into the picture. Why repentance? Because faith and repentance go together. The simplest way to understand is they're basically two sides of the same coin. To turn toward God in faith is to at the same time turn away from sin in repentance. So if you really do put your faith in God, you simultaneously turn away from sin. If you're not turning away from sin, you're really not putting your faith in God. And this is so important because this brings about life. If we're going to experience life. This Again, this is at a very practical level. This isn't just spiritual life. This is spiritual life, but it's more than that. It's spiritual life that manifests itself in how we live every day. You can see spiritual life. You can, you can see it. It's not just life that goes on forever. It's also a quality of life and that quality of life will manifest itself how we live on a day-to-day basis. Our friends, our co-workers, neighbors, relatives, they should see that we have spiritual life. We have something that they don't have. We live in a way that's different from how they live. But it's not because of who we are. That's why it's so important to understand this is all the work of God. That's why God gets all the credit. If there's any change in my life, if God has set me free from drugs, because God has set me free from drugs, I didn't just turn over a new leaf. I just didn't try a little harder to say No. God did a work. I give Him all the credit. I give Him all the glory. I give Him all the praise. And for some of you, it might be different things that God is doing in your life, transforming you, delivering you from anger, delivering you from bitterness, delivering you from materialism, delivering you from whatever it might be. But that's repentance. God is working in your life so that you can really live and enjoy life. There is nothing more enjoyable than a holy life. In Sunday school, we, we were talking about heaven. And I said, Jonathan Edwards does a magnificent job of describing heaven. And, and maybe one day I'll borrow from his sermon and, and, and preach it to you. Um, but he mentioned that in heaven, there's no sin whatsoever. There, there's no lying. There's no slander. There's no gluttony. There's no... Sin whatsoever, Just go through the seven deadly sins. Go through every sin. You, there's no sin in heaven. And there are no sinners in heaven. Because before we enter into heaven, we are glorified. And, and all, all our sin is purified. So we don't bring any of our sinful nature with us. So in heaven, there are only saints in the truest sense of that word, saints who never sinned. Now we're saints positionally, but in heaven we will be saints practically for how we live. In heaven there's, there's none of that. There's no sin. There's, there's no sinners. It's a place of absolute purity, absolute holiness, absolute love, absolute patience and gentleness and graciousness and joy. That's heaven. Because heaven is a place of holiness where you experience life. And as we grow in holiness now, turning away from our sin, we get a foretaste of heaven. The most enjoyable life on this earth is the holiest life on this earth. One of the reasons why Jesus was the happiest person who ever walked the face of this earth is because Jesus was the most holy person who ever walked in the face of this earth. And those go together. And that's what God is doing. He is bringing about repentance so that we can experience life. Not just spiritual life and life that will never end, but life that is qualitatively different. And notice, maybe I'll just conclude with this, God orchestrated the whole thing. God orchestrated the whole thing. This all all started because God had Cornelius and his household in his sights. And he said, that man right there, I love him. I love his household. He's coming into my body. I'm adopting him into my family. In order for that to happen, I've got to get Peter over there. How am I got to get Peter over there? So I'm going to bring about an angel over here who's going to give him a message. And then they're going to go over here. But then I've got to get Peter ready. So I'm going to have this vision for Peter. And I'm, going to have a, and I'm going to speak to him from heaven. I'm going to get Peter over there. God's a divine choreographer. He, he orchestrated the whole thing. Brought it all together. And if you're a Christian, you're a Christian because God did the same thing to you. He set his sights on you and said, "Wow, how can I get him? How can I get her into the body of Christ?" And He said, "I know. Bring this person over and bring this person." God really is the author of salvation. It's, it's as though before He ever created the world, God got out His pen. He said, "All right, this is how it's going to happen." Okay, for this person, I'm going to bring him up. This, this, this. God wrote the whole script. And then it all came together. And you're here today because of what God did. And it's so important. to wow, Lord, thank you that you would do that to me. So don't just think, wow, it's neat what he did for Cornelius. Yeah, it's neat what he did for Cornelius. He did the same thing for you. Same thing for you. He said, well, he didn't send me an angel. You don't know that. You don't know that. He might have. Some have entertained angels unaware. Maybe he did. You might be surprised when you get to heaven. Some of you might say, "You know, wow, he got an angel." And God might say, "You know what? You got an angel." This person right over—you had no idea, did you? Wow, I didn't. Just looked like an ordinary man. I had no idea. God has brought you into the fold as well. Amen. Let's thank God, Father. We thank you for your great work among the Gentiles, which means most of us. Thank you for the gospel that continues to go forth. Thank you that we get to be a part of its work going. To the very ends of the earth, Father, what a great, and glorious God you are! We, we praise you. It is wonderful. It is awesome. May we never take it for granted. It's all you're doing in our life, so we give you all the glory. Amen.